We will continue in the book of Thessalonians. Today we will read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel, the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alice. We're in our second week of our new series. Uh, in First Thessalonians that we're calling Living Today While Longing for Tomorrow. The book of First uh, Thessalonians mentions the second coming of Christ. Basically, at the end of every chapter, uh, it is mentioned. And yet, it's written so that we don't check out of today, but we live today while longing for tomorrow. Remember, it's a letter, quick recap, written to the church in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece. Modern-day Greece. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that stood out for being a young, persecuted church and an outwardly missional church. We had that same theme and slide last week, but I want to put it on there again just to remember who this church is for the first few weeks as we enter into this. A young church, not meaning young by age, but young in the faith. Paul had planted a church there. They were very young. He was there for a few weeks and then had been gone for about a year as this letter came back to them. They were a persecuted church uh, for their faith, for their belief. But they were, even in that persecution, an outwardly missional church. Timothy had come back to Paul after visiting them with a report about the church. They had had to flee, do you remember, from Acts 17. Paul, Timothy, and Silas had to flee this town, Thessalonica, under persecution. There had been a public riot, and there had been legal charges uh, brought against Paul and his companions, and they fled to save their lives. And so what we have in 1 Thessalonians is a letter written back to this church, this young, persecuted, outwardly missional church. 
John Stott says of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 that we get an insight into the Apostle Paul's heart. He says this of this passage, and I believe it. He says, in these chapters, more perhaps than anywhere else in his letters, he discloses his mind, expresses his emotion, and bears his soul. You see, Paul was under attack after leaving Thessalonica, not physically, but he'd heard back in the town that his character and his motives as a pastor had been called into question, and he was having an attack on his character. His motives, his heart, his drive. And so because of that, the gospel was being undermined because they were attacking the leader and the mouthpiece of the gospel. They were saying things like, Paul was greedy. That's why he was a pastor. He was in it for the money. Or he doesn't care. Look, he snuck away at night. Remember? Things got hot, the heat was turned up, and he got out. He snuck away at night. You see? Paul's not a great guy. Where Where is he when we need him? He's not a great leader. Paul, like all of us, was vulnerable, vulnerable to attack, not fragile, as we're going to see this morning. They're not the same thing. Vulnerable is not fragile, but he was vulnerable to attack. Attacks can ruin all kinds of relationships, can't they? Think about your life, verbal attacks even, words that we say. They can ruin relationships. They can ruin a promotion in the workplace when someone attacks your character. They can ruin a marriage. They can destroy a friendship. And it's an incredible passage here as Paul is being attacked by those in the community. It's an incredible passage because he not only mixes this boldness and this toughness, but it's mixed with this humble and tender vulnerability. It's really a picture of what the gospel can do. Make us the most bold people, but at the same time the most gentle and humble. And only the gospel can really do that in life, as we'll see today. It's enough, actually, in this passage, though, that it's probably going to make each and every one of us a little uncomfortable at some point today. (laughs) That's okay. And maybe that's my point, actually. Maybe that was Paul's point with these words. What we have before us today is Paul answering a few questions as he responds to this character assassination, and here they are. What does a genuine leader look like? What is the, 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 a character of the leader to look like in the church? For that matter, how are all of us to look and interact? Because when the Bible talks about leaders, pastors, shepherds, elders, deacons, deaconesses, that's not just the character qualities that the high super spiritual are to have. That's what all of us should be aiming at. Have you ever thought about it that way? When First Timothy and Titus talk about elders, that's not just for the elders. It's for them, but that should be the call for all of us. And so that's what Paul is doing today. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he describes what an authentic real leader looks like by highlighting what the gospel does to a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the perseverance of Paul, the personal motivations, motives of Paul, and his pastoral heart. Pastors love alliteration. Doesn't it work out so nice when it works that way? The perseverance, the personal motives, and the pastoral hearts. Our message is entitled, Be Real. Be Real, Church. Paul was the real deal. So hopefully you got your outline there and your text open. Let's start with the perseverance of Paul. Here's what we see. The gospel cultivates in us and in a person who believes it a bold, persevering voice or person or heart of truth. A bold, persevering voice of truth. In verses 1 to 2, Paul describes how he's been transformed by the gospel. He had been cultivated in the truths of the gospel. 
for a, a, a farming community that has been historically can be and still is in some level, cultivation should be a word that we kind of grab onto. Yeah, you cultivate, you grow, you feed, you weed, you take care of it, you cultivate it. You've been cultivated in the truths of the gospel. And you've been discipled into a boldness and a perseverance. He was like a steel, steel truth teller. And he says in these verses, he, he, he lays it out, He's not uh, impervious, though. He's not a stoic. He says in these verses, I've experienced suffering. You know in Philippi. You heard about it. I told you when I came. And shaming, he says, and, and much conflict. He says, we were surrounded by conflict. You ever feel that in your life? I know some of you do. There's seasons where you feel like you're in the eye of like a tornado. And conflict is just swirling around you. If you've ever felt like that, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul felt like that. Surrounded by conflict, he says. But we still came to you, he says. I still came with a boldness in God, that's key, to declare the gospel of God. Those are key phrases Paul says in here. He dared to tell the gospel is what the Greek literally says. I dared to tell you this thing, this truth. What that means is he felt free. Paul felt emboldened and fearless to speak of Jesus. And his bold speech actually is what caused his visit to not be uh, fruitless but fruitful. It wasn't a vain visit, he says. It wasn't vain, and the text says. And he calls the Thessalonians to remember this as witnesses. He says it all over the passage. Did you hear that when Alice read? He says, you know this. You know this. Or he said, remember? He said that too. And he says it five times throughout the passage. And then twice he even says, God is my witness. He's making a strong case here for not only the gospel, but his ministry, because he's an authentic leader with integrity. God is my witness, he says. That's strong language. God is my witness. You see, for Paul, his courage, his boldness, his perseverance was in God, not in himself, in God, verse 2 says. And as I said already, verse 2 also says it's God's gospel. He's on a mission here. That it's not his own even as it is his own. God's gospel and God's truth. And Paul really believed these truths. He really believed these things. That God was his strength and that God wouldn't abandon him. And and that Jesus was the true Messiah who had been resurrected. Paul believed these things. Would you go through what Paul had? Would you go through something like Paul did if it was a lie? This history records his whippings. His beatings, his stonings, his shipwrecks, his hunger. Yeah, I'll go through that for something we made up to get power and influence. And you know, No, you wouldn't do that. Why would the Apostle Paul? He really believed these words. Which if I didn't, why would I stand here before you and make claims on your life as your pastor? Unless I really believe this. Why would you come here today unless there's something inside of you, some level of kind of a feeling of, there's got to be something here. This Christianity's been around for thousands of years and it's transformed billions of lives. You're here today because of that. We believe these things. We only suffer for what we believe in. You believe that? <laughs> it's true. We only really suffer for what we believe in. You know, and when it comes right down to it, um, who's better, the ducks or the beavers? You're probably not going to go uh, to the guillotine for that. Maybe some of you would, but we'll talk afterwards if that's you. But, I mean, think about that. Think about that. What would you die for, honestly? Paul believed these truths. 
when I was a young man at my church in Orange County, we were part of a, a Christian, a coordinated effort that took place in Southern California about eight years ago, I think it was. No, actually, no, maybe 12 years ago now. Sorry. Um, yeah, time flies, doesn't it? Uh, it was a coordinated effort to pass out on college campuses copies of Charles, Dar- Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. You probably think, why would you do that as a Christian? You know, Darwin is the, uh, the, the, was a great proponent in history of, of uh, evolution and um, some beliefs that Christians have struggled with, obviously. And it was going to happen on multiple college campuses around Southern California on the same day at the same time. Hey, why would we do that? Well, inside that copy of uh, Origin of Species, there was a, a fantastic long introduction written by Ray Comfort. If you heard his name, he's a, a fantastic evangelist that was writing about Christianity, about a theistic worldview over against a materialistic, naturalistic worldview. And so we would hand these copies out to people we were supposed to, and it wasn't like a a bait and switch. We'd tell people, like, take a look at the introduction. There's some challenges to Darwin in there, along with a copy. It was the 200th anniversary, actually, of the publishing is why we did it on that day. And we were supposed to hand these out. And I was anything but bold and courageous on that day. So we were actually going back to my uh, college campus, Cal State Fullerton, which I just graduated from a couple years prior, and I was really nervous to take these books and hand them out. We had heard and actually had been publicized um, to multiple groups that were going to be there to protest and, and intervene and try to get these books from going out to students that had gone around, and so that we knew that there was going to be some conflict probably on that day, but I shouldn't have been so timid. God had already opened tons of doors for us to get on that campus. I was the one responsible for going to get the permit, and it was easy. Easy peasy. Here's the permit. Great. You can be on the quad on that day. You have permission by the university. You're allowed to be there. You're allowed to hand out these books. We had gotten it. Well, you know, you're passing out books. You know, books are one of the heaviest things to move when you move, aren't they? Uh, My wife says, let's get rid of some of those books the next time we move, every time. (laughs) Uh, They're heavy. We had, I think, we had uh, at least one truck full of them. If you know some of those college campuses you've been on, you can have to walk a mile sometimes to get from the parking lot to the quad, right? Well, we got there that day, and I'm, I'm scared about that. Like, how are we going to get these books there? Everybody's going to see us carrying them through the campus and go, there they are. They've got the books. We get there, and one of the campus security is like, yeah, just drive into the middle of campus. Don't worry about it. Okay. That was the first and last time I'd ever driven through my college campus, <laughs> through the middle of it. We got there, and we drove up to give out the books, and... Um, we had these multiple boxes, and we, 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 we got them there. God had already done so much to make this a possibility. And yet, even as the event began, and we're giving out these copies, and we're having good conversations, it was great, actually. Great conversations. I was still really timid. And an older Christian woman who was helping us out that day, her name was Debbie. And she came to me, and, and she could sense my nerves and my timidity, and she said, Jeff, you're being a doubting Thomas. And it wasn't cruel, It wasn't mean-spirited. And what she meant in that little phrase, if you know the story of Thomas, one of the disciples who doubted Jesus and had to even touch his hands to see him, what she communicated to me in that little phrase is, Jeff, you know. You know this Jesus. You know he's alive in body. You know he's reigning. You know he's loving. You know he's coming back for you. Stop being a doubting Thomas. Just go hand out the books. Just share the word. Share the truth. She reminded me of what I know to be true. And that's what Paul is doing here when he says, you know this, Thessalonians, you know this. 
The Apostle Paul had been so cultivated in the truths of the gospel, and they've been worked so down into the marrow of his bones, and he believed them, that even in the face of conflict and persecution, he went the distance for the Thessalonians. He went the distance. He went to the finish line for them. He went through the obstacles he needed to love them. And pastors and Christian leaders are to be men and women of bold, persevering truth-tellers. We're to be bold in the gospel, but guess what? We all are to be. Not just your pastor, not just your elder, not just your deaconesses, all of us, because we know these truths. Bold in God, bold for God's gospel, the verses say. And if we're bold in the presence of God, which is what Paul is saying, and what we do for him as Paul was, it's actually a small thing to be bold in the presence of mere humans. If you've got a boldness in the face of God, as we carry on this mission of disciple-making, Paul was a persevering, bold man. But you know what? You and I can be too. Because we have the same gospel. We have the same risen Savior. You can be bold for Jesus. You can. So where is the relationship you need to be a little more bold with? Think about that for a minute. Where is the relationship you need to be a little more front and center with the love of Jesus? Who's a person right now? Think of a person in your life. Who's a person in your life you would like to see take next steps towards Jesus? Even if they're small baby steps. I, I want to help you do this. We're not all getting up today and going out and evangelizing door to door right now. No, we're not doing that. But I want you to take out your outline for a minute or flip over to the um, growth group questions in the back. Would you do that for me? Flip those over there. And we've got something at the bottom there on the second side there. It says a sound forth challenge. Remember chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said, the gospel is overflowing in you so much that it's sounding forth from you like a loud gong. I don't even need to do my job, basically, he said. The sound forth challenge, what I want you to do is, I want you to think of a couple names. And if you got a pen, great. If there's not, you don't. There's one in the chair in front of you. I want you to write those names down. Two people you would like to see take steps closer to Jesus. If you're in a growth group, while you're thinking about that, we're going to be praying for those specifically in our growth groups and praying for each other with those two. But it helps sometimes to like put something down pen to paper. So think for a minute and write down a couple names. We'll come back to that in a couple weeks, and you'll come back to it this week in your growth groups as you'll pray together for those people and pray for your own boldness and courage and ways to love. Remember, we're looking at the perseverance, the personal motives, the pastoral heart, so let's move on to the personal motives now. Paul had a great perseverance, but what were his motives? In verse 3 through 6, Paul talks about his personal motives for ministering, which, remember, they're under great attack. His heart and his character was under attack from the people in Thessalonica, his reason for being an apostle even, his reason for being a preacher, even the lack of his presence with them. Like, where is he? He's missing. Where is he? Why is he not here with us? Why hasn't he come back to see us? It's been a year. They were caused, it was causing some to doubt his message. In verse 3, he says, my gospel appeal, he says it was not false. My motives are not impure, he uses that word. I'm not trying to trick or deceive you, he says. And in verse 5, he says, I'm not trying to flatter you either. 
or earn money from the gospel. I'm not trying to seek my own fame and glory, he says. I'm just not doing that. And here's what's so challenging about being in Christian ministry these days and so challenging about Paul's words for all of us in the church. There have been and there will still be people that go into ministry with faulty motives, with impure motives. I mean, that's one of the great strengths and reasons for the local church. It's a reason we have a man, young man like Joel kind of going into an intern program. The local church is there to raise up leaders. The local church is there to know the character of the men and women that they bring into ministry. That's the power of the local church. And it's been so challenging to be a pastor in ministry in recent years because there have been many that have gotten into ministry for a whole host of faulty motives. The very things Paul's accused of, it's not new. They're accusing Paul of it in his day. And think of the recent leadership failings in the church that have happened. And a church that maybe has lost its mission over the past few decades and lost its way in the evangelical world has caused, do you know this, a lot of Americans to view the church and our message in not the best light. Lifeway um, Ministry, which is a ministry that we trust and use a lot of even resources from, along with, I think, um, Pew Research Center, oh no, Gallup, sorry, um, was, did a study just this last year or two. And what they found was pretty shocking. They were asking Americans how they view the church and pastors. And it went from uh, a great amount of trust, total trust, to some, or to a good amount of trust, to some trust, to a little trust, to none at all, was their questions. They asked church and the pastors. And what they found was a bit surprising that 31% of the American population, and you can see how it's gone down since the 70s, 31% range from quite a lot to a great deal of confidence. So, okay, 31% of Americans. But that means that 69% of Americans, 69, almost 70% of our nation ranges somewhere from some confidence in church and pastors to none at all. Think about that for a moment. Almost 70%. What can we take away from data like that? Well, here's the first thing. Our integrity our lives is directly related to receptivity to the gospel. If we live as men and women without integrity and don't practice the things we preach, it disrupts the gospel. That's why Paul was so concerned about his character. That's why he's so strongly defending himself. It's not because he's got pride and wants to be seen as a great leader. No, he knows if I go down and I'm a speaker of the gospel, the name of Jesus will be tarnished and the message will suffer. These past few years have been an incredibly hard season for pastors' moral failures. And we shouldn't gloss them over. We should not sweep them under the rug. What does that communicate to the watching world? Bill Hybels of Willow Creek, huge fall. Ravi Zacharias, that many of you read and followed. Carl Lentz of Hillsong, celebrity pastor, premier number one. The list goes on and on, too. Not just famous pastors, but men who have had moral failings in the past five years. So how can our elders, how can I as a pastor, how can our elders guard our integrity? How can you as a follower of Christ and guard your, guard your integrity? 
and not bring disrepute on the gospel? And how can our ministry and our motives as pastors and Christians be pure? We're going to get to that. Now, I know all of us, we all are a bundle of mixed emotions, aren't we? Everybody's a bundle of mixed emotions and motives all the time. Some good and maybe some ulterior or not so good motives. And that makes Paul's words daunting here. I mean, his words are daunting, especially in verse 10 when he says, I have been holy, I have been righteous, I have been blameless or above reproach, he says. That's a pretty strong call. When I read that this week, I was struck and convicted as a pastor. Like, could I say that? Could you say that? The key is verse 4. Listen to verse 4. He says this, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul says, I don't minister ultimately for your approval. I don't minister ultimately for your approval. And as I think about that, if I was to minister for your approval, the last three years would have looked a lot different for us as a church, wouldn't it? (laughs) It would have looked a lot different. I think you know what I'm getting at. (laughs) We have to. We have to, all of us, you. We have to live for God's approval, not men and women. And Paul says, I've been approved by God for this ministry. He knows by both creation and redemption, he realized I belong to God, not the other way around. I don't take him in my hand and mold and shape him. He takes me in his. I am his. I minister for him. Paul was in the world to serve God to put God at the center of his life. That's our second point that we have there. The gospel produces pure motives. Why? Because it puts God at the center. You want to have integrity in life, it's having God at the center of our life. We've talked about this before, but God is not here on this earth to be our cosmic butler. (laughs) We might think that. Or to serve our agenda or to to, to help Paul accomplish his goals. Paul knows his life is is being lived to please God. When you know that every breath you take and every day you open your eyes because God in grace and mercy gives you another day and you live that and believe that, you begin to realize that God is the pilot and I'm the co-pilot. It's not the other way around. And that's what produced Paul's motives, he's saying. I'm living and ministering to please God, not man. If you live your life as if God was there to serve your agenda, what's going to happen in your life? There's a couple things. Let's make this really practical. What, what's your life going to look like if, if God and Son, you wouldn't maybe even verbally say that, but let's just say you tend to live that way as if God is there to bless you and give you what you would like. You're going to be terribly disappointed and frustrated in life. Here's what happens. When things don't go your way and you feel like you've been living a good life, who do you get mad at then? God. That's the one option. Things aren't going your way, though, and you know you've been blowing it in life, then who do you get mad at? Yourself. It's one of those two things. One of those two responses come to you if you find yourself when things don't go your way. Either mad at thee or mad at me, right? That's what happens. Either way, to live with yourself as the center of your life is a course for shipwreck for your life. It just is. Whether you're a follower of Christ today or you're not, 
It's shipwreck for life. If he's truly who he says he is. Here's another thing then. If you live this way with yourself at the center of your life and not God, how do you view people? How do you interact with people? Well, if you live with yourself at the center of your life, then people become in your life a means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves because they're image bearers made in God's image. They become a means to an end. And so we can, we can use people for our own ends. Even those that go into ministry can do it in such a way that where if they're at the center, you exist to kind of serve me, make me feel good, prop me up rather than the other way around. But that's for all of us because we're all called to serve. We can use people for our own ends if we're at the center of our own life. And that's what they were accusing Paul of. That's what the Apostle Paul was being accused of. We end up not caring for people, actually, or if we do, it's with faulty motives. And we don't care for people just because they're worthy of our care in and of themselves as image bearers. They center around us. And so we might do kind things to feel good about ourselves, or get the upper hand and put them into our debt. They owe us. So they're indebted to us. And then uh, conversely, we don't let them serve us many times because then we'll feel indebted to them. And we don't like to be indebted to people, do we? If you don't serve someone bigger than yourself, do you know what? True love is actually impossible. It's impossible because true love always benefits the other person. You remember that great kind of classic movie now, Princess Bride? Remember that? A lot of you saw it and maybe you've read the book, but the movie was just a great kind of classic, goofy, funny story. And Wesley was serving at the beginning of that movie. Do you remember Princess Buttercup? And she would come to him and she'd say, boy, get me the water. Boy, get me the grain. Uh, boy, do this, do that. And you remember how he, re- how he responded? As you wish. As you wish. And in that as you wish, I think, is the, the, a true definition of love. And there's a point in the movie where she realizes it. Oh, he's not just, it's not just lip service. He's not using me for his ends. He real, she realizes that moment when he says, as you wish, he's actually saying, I truly love you and I'm here to serve you. That's what true love is. And we see that in the gospel, don't we, in Christ's life. When we're at the center of our life, rather than God, we objectify others for our ends. And you know what you end up doing? We end up choking and suffocating our own life, and it's drained of joy. When the gospel is at the center of your life, it produces a joy, a true possibility to love. Well, you might think, okay, this sounds great, but how do I do this? God at the center, pure motives and priorities, as Paul, how do I do this? Well, to have God at the center, and it's our third and final point today, requires a great deal of vulnerability in life. A great deal of vulnerability. So let's look at this. Let's look at his pastoral heart now. It was uh, his perseverance, his priorities, now his pastoral heart. The gospel frees us to have a vulnerable heart and a heart that wants the best for others. As you wish, right? As you wish. A vulnerable heart that wants the best for others. It's in verses 7 through 12 where we see Paul's pastoral heart, and he's being very vulnerable there. But first, I better, we better define our terms if we're going to talk about vulnerability. We did this yesterday at the men's breakfast for about 15, 20 minutes. Nobody was squirming, I promise you at all, when we talked about vulnerability with a bunch of men. <laughs> Actually, it's a hard topic for all of us. 
Let's define our terms and how Paul sees it here and how it makes for a good leader in a healthy church. When I say that the gospel frees us to have a vulnerable heart, I don't mean fragile. I don't mean fragile like the idea of a, a snowflake, you know, able to be just destroyed and, and fragile and, and, and just too hypersensitive. I don't mean that. By vulnerability, I don't mean weak or passive. If I was to ask you, though, if vulnerable sounds like more of a female or male trait, think about it for a minute. Would most of us probably, I think, say, I bet we'd say female. So if that's what you're thinking when you hear the word vulnerable, that's an absolute misunderstanding. Because Paul was very vulnerable, Jesus was very vulnerable, and yet they were both two of the most manly men that ever lived. And I know this word scares us. I mean, who likes to be vulnerable? When we hear that word vulnerable, it, it, it connotes kind of this idea of being open to attack or ridicule or unsafe, and all those things can make anxiety well up inside of us. But what if a simpler definition for vulnerable was just the title of this message? Be real. Be real. Or how about if we put it this way? Vulnerability is really, it's really sharing your life with someone. And not only your victories and triumphs, but your hardships and struggles and failures and feelings even. I mean, isn't that what Paul is doing in verses 7 through 12? He'd only spent, remember, three weeks with these people. He'd only spent three weeks with the Thessalonians, and he says to them, I affectionately desire you. Imagine if I asked you to turn to your neighbor right now and say that. I affectionately desire you as a, as a brother and sister in Christ. No way! You would be absolutely uncomfortable. Don't do it. Well, you can, no, don't do it. No, actually don't. Depends who you're sitting next to, I guess. I affectionately desire you. That's the Apostle Paul saying this. And he goes on to summarize. I'm like a mother to you. I'm like a father to you. I'm like a brother to you. That's right. I'm like a mother, a father, a brother to you. That is vulnerable. Do you like the idea that our elders are to be a spiritual father and mother to you? Do you like that idea? And do you feel vulnerable enough to not only see your need, but desire that? Not because our elders are any better, not because I'm better as your pastor, but it's because what God has called me to be. It's what he's approved of of me to do in your life. Or not because I want some power and influence over your life, Believe me, that's actually the last thing I want. And yet that's what God has called us to all come into the power of the gospel for all of us to come under its power. Myself too. Now this is hard for every congregation. This is hard just because we're humans. Think Adam and Eve. Who likes to be vulnerable before their maker? Yet they were made naked, weren't they? <laughs> How do I know we struggle with this? We've been having, a, we've been having an elder open prayer time for over a year now. It's a vulnerable thing to come to leaders in your church and say, I need prayer. Or can I talk to you about something? We've been having it for over a year. We've had one person come. One. Think about that for a moment. We've had one. And I'm not saying that because our elders are sitting there going, boo-hoo, they don't love us. No, that's not what we're doing. And maybe it's something, maybe as elders, it's something we need to look at. Maybe we aren't approachable. Maybe we seem aloof or standoffish. But I see that and I go, why would, why would people not want that? 
And I'm not trying to guilt you today. I just see it as a symptom of what Paul's talking about here today. We don't like the idea that as we grow up, we still need a mommy and a daddy. And that's what Paul says here. Those are pretty vulnerable words, aren't they? I'm like a spiritual mother to you. I'm like a spiritual father to you. He goes on. And even says, I have every right as an apostle to demand from you, but I'm ready to not share not only the gospel with you, but my very life I would give for you as you wish, right? As you wish. Look, you may not, as you hear my words, you may not like the idea of being vulnerable in a moment with others in the church, but can I just say something first on this topic of vulnerability? Vulnerability is not something you choose to be in a given moment. It's just something you are because you're human. It's just something you are because you're human. To be human is to be vulnerable. Remember, I just said this. Adam and Eve were born how? Naked. Adam was born from dust, and he needed God to breathe into his nostrils the way God did it. That wasn't random. I mean, we're vulnerable. God did that to show, I am creator. You are creature. We have creaturely limits, and we, we are dependent upon others. Here's a question. Do you realize in any given moment of the day how dependent you are on others? Do you realize that? And I realize, I, I know this. I know this. I've lived here, I hope, long enough to know this, that this flies in the face of the ethos of the Northwest. I get it. Our pioneer kind of attitude, our can-do, we can grow our own vegetables, right? We can hunt our own food, and we can fix our own cars. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Please hear that. Those are all well and good things. And it's good to be able to be self-sufficient and independent, and we should teach our children those things too. But don't fool yourself into thinking you don't need others. Think about how limited, even the most self-sufficient survival person in this room is still needy. Do you know how dependent you are on hundreds, maybe thousands of people just to flush your toilet? (laughs) Think about that. Or to go in a room and flip on the light switch. You're dependent on hundreds, maybe thousands of people. Or to go fill your car with gas to get it filled. And here's why this truth is so important. A Christian church, a Christian community cannot flourish without vulnerability. There's a great book that came out recently um, called You're Only Human. (laughs) That's a good title. The subtitle is How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News for You. You're like, yeah, right. That doesn't sound good. But he's making a case that it is. Here's what Kelly Capek said in his book. I just love this little quote. He says, I believe that recognizing one's vulnerability before God and others is, uh, is fundamental to a Christian understanding of being human. He says, I believe that. He says, although the word is absent from the Bible, both testaments affirm that we are, in fact, vulnerable to failure, external attack, and internal weaknesses. From the air we breathe to the water we drink, our relationships to our employment, from our minds to our wills, everything about us points to our dependence on God, others, and the earth. We are creatures, he goes on to say, and thus we are necessarily vulnerable, but our modern world tempts us in countless ways to pretend this is not the case. I might imagine I don't need anything or anyone, but trying to live this falsehood is devastating, and you can feel it, he says. 
I got some copies of this out there today. If you're like, that quote sounds interesting. I got about five copies out there today. $20 hardback where it's available for 10 out there. Because I think, I think this idea about our finiteness is something we need to recapture in our lives. The gospel frees us to be vulnerable. How does it do that? Because the message of the gospel isn't about getting ourselves a better life. It's about the message that you need a new life. You need a heart transplant. It's about receiving forgiveness in Christ. You know, what is more vulnerable than forgiveness? Think about that. What is more vulnerable than offering forgiveness or asking and receiving forgiveness? And if that's the heart of the gospel, the way into this thing is through vulnerability. And actually the way to grow in it is too. Remember, I don't mean weakness. I don't mean fragility. I don't mean passivity. But just realness. Realness. We can't have these things without being willing to be vulnerable and exposed. But it's the gospel only that gives this security to know that you're absolutely secure in Jesus' love. Do you know that means that if you were sitting in your growth group and let's say you were to reveal something that made every single person walk out of the room and leave you, which I'm not recommending you do, especially every week, but if you were to do that and everybody walked away and said, I can't believe she just shared that, you're still not alone. You still have the Lord Jesus Christ holding you onto you. Now, hopefully they wouldn't respond that way and they would have empathy in their own vulnerability, right? And be okay with and sit in the discomfort of that moment. But even if they all walked out, you wouldn't be alone. So if every coworker turns on you, if your family's like, shut up, we don't want to hear about Jesus anymore, you know, you're still not alone. Not that we're to be annoying or brash with our gospel, so that we intentionally annoy people, but you wouldn't be alone. Well, you're still maybe thinking, I don't know this idea of vulnerability. I am not sure. That's me. I mean, I go to church. I'm there. I share. I'm in a growth group. You know, I don't, I probably, I have a realistic sense of myself and my need of God as creator and I'm creature. And here's a question to ask to know if you struggle with this. And I'll just say, I do. How's your prayer life? People who are willing to admit their vulnerability, you know what they have? Great prayer lives. They've got great lives of prayer because a vulnerable person knows their need, knows they're needy. Those who don't sense their vulnerability, guess what their prayer life looks like? They rarely pray. So how's your prayer life? As a person who lives an ongoing life of repentance and faith with God, that's people who are, know their vulnerability. It's not just say the sinner's prayer to get into the door and then live my life by pulling myself up on my bootstraps. No, it's an ongoing vulnerability in seeing you need Christ every day. Every moment of every day you need him. It's my God, my God. If I didn't have your forgiveness and mercy for one second of the day, I'd be doomed. A person that sees their vulnerability has a rich prayer life. And again, I don't mean fragile or weak, but I mean you see your limits. You know you're flawed. You know you're in need of even the person sitting next to you. Today, vulnerable people are there for others and want the best for others as Paul did. Look at verse 12, which was to walk in a manner worthy of God he wants for them. He can love them and share his heart and life with them 
as he describes this because he was there to serve them. Look, they need Paul, and Paul needs them, and they all know it, and they're willing to admit it. The greatest thing the enemy can do here at Bethany Church, please hear this. The greatest thing the enemy can do here at Bethany Church is to cause us to all silently believe we don't need each other. That you don't need someone. We don't really need each other. Ah, yeah, I might need to pick me up from a sermon, but a pastor and elders who will nurture me like a mother and maybe exhort and even rebuke me like a father. Ah, I don't need that. Or a growth group who will keep me accountable to church attendance. Where have you been? We haven't seen you. Are you okay? And answering those icky application questions, right? I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. Or a community of people that, you know, actually sometimes they annoy me, right? I mean, we're a weird group of people to be together. Nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ would bring this room of people together. Nothing. Think about that. It just wouldn't. And But you want me to be with them and share my life with them and they need me, but I don't know if I need them. Vulnerable people see their need of others and the need to have spiritual fathers and mothers in their life. We do. They're open to criticism, vulnerable people. Why? Because they're secure in Jesus. They're open to rebuke and change. Why? Because they're secure in Jesus. They're open to serve others. Why? Because Christ gave his life for them. Because it's a community. It's a body calling here. You can't do it alone. You need others. It's so easy to fill a meal train list. Do you know that? You know what that is? That's our email we send out to get you to take meals to people who are ill or having babies or just lost a loved one in their life. It's so easy to fill that thing up. We send it out, and thank God you're such a generous, giving people. Every time, it gets filled up, and the meals just get filled. Do you know how hard it is to get somebody to take meals? It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. We want to be needed. We don't want to be needy. We don't want to be indebted to others. But to be human is to be needy and to be vulnerable. That's the core of Christianity. It's the core of the the gospel. And here's the irony. The more we can admit our vulnerability as a church, guess what happens? The stronger we will be. It's an irony, a paradox, maybe a paradox, actually. The more we can be vulnerable with each other, the stronger we will be. Why is that? Because when we're vulnerable and weak, where do we go to find our strength? The only place where you can get real strength, Christ in the gospel. I want us to be a strong church. I'm not calling us to be a church that you know, holds hands every Sunday and cries together every Sunday. You know? It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I want us to be real as a church. And many of you are. This isn't a rebuke on all of us. But we all could probably be a little more. Are you willing to be vulnerable? Participating member in the life of this church, it's going to take vulnerability. To connect with others, to spread the gospel, to make disciples who make disciples. That's what Paul wanted. This persevering bold truth, these godly motives with God at the center, and vulnerable hearts that only the gospel can make us bold and humble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Paul had hard, tough words this morning, and yet they came from a man who said he affectionately desired the people. 
Lord Jesus, may you make us into those kind of people that we saw in Paul today. Bold people that persevere with the truth. People whose personal motives are truly God-centered and gospel-centered. And people who will just go the distance together, together with pastoral hearts like Paul had. It's only a work you can do, Jesus. So would you keep doing it here in our local church and in our town and other churches here in Canby? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.